needs to be done. What you see needs to be done. And James wrote a couple of uh, illustrations here, and he talked about Rahab. Let's pick up, pick up in verse 24 of chapter 2. You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and the message sent them out and sent them out another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay. I, I want to give a little background on that. So go to Numbers. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Le- Leviticus, Numbers 21. And uh, look at verse 21. And Israel sent messengers to Sagan, the king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off the field or the vineyard. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway until we pass through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his borders. So Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness, came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took his possessions and his land. Verse 25. And Israel took all the cities and Israel lived in the cities of the the Amorites. Verse 26. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon. Skip down to 33. Then when they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, Og, the king of Bashan, went out with his people to do battle. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people in his land, and and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Verse 35, And so they killed him, his sons, all their people until there was no remnant left and they possessed his land. Now go to Joshua chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 4. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly to Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of the harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And he was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 
And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the men went out. I, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, or you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as they, as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. Verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven uh, above and on the earth. Then he goes on to tell the narrative. And verse 14 says, Our life for yours, if you do not tell the business of ours, it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithful, faithfully with you. Look at verse 10 again. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Seas. When you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites. And she, she says, our, our hearts melted away. <clears throat> Folks, Gail shared with us last week, we're going to start this March. Thank you. I wanted to say madness, but I knew that was right. <laughs> March mobilization. And it's all about telling our story. We used to call it, we had testimony meetings. We don't do that anymore. We, don't, we, we just don't. On occasion, we call on people to testify. But Rahab, her faith was made strong by the testimony <coughs> that she received of what the Lord had done. The power of a testimony saved a nation. And it saved the family of Rahab. And she's in the Lord's genealogy. Unlikely lady, a prostitute. But she's in the genealogy of our Lord. The power of a testimony. And James is pointing back to that time years and years and years ago. And he says, because of the testimony that she had heard, her faith, her faith was made strong and then she worked it out by saying, hey, I'll take care of you and you take care of me. I'll do that. She could have sent them by another way. She could have said, no, you're not going to stay here. 
She could have said a lot of different things, but she says, I've seen and I've heard the testimony of the Lord. That's what it means to have faith and back it up when it works. That's what it means. Chapter 3. Now, we're fixing to jump off on some deep water here. Alright. Now, chapter 3, back to James. The first two verses, we're going to spend a little time with them. Let not many of you become teachers. We'll stop right there. <laughs> How many teachers we got in this thing? One, two, three, four, five. Teachers. Teachers. Six. <laughs> he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that of such will incur a stricter judgment. Twenty-one years ago, Judge Robert Bork wrote a book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah. And he pointed out a lot of things um, that we know is true. And he says part of the slouching toward tomorrow has to do with our educational process. <clears throat> Universities are central to cultural institutions. Their preservation of the great works of the traditions of Western civilization include the traditions of rationality, skepticism, have both been crucial to the growth of individual freedom, respect for the rule of law, and scientific process, uh, process, progress. Universities now threaten to abandon those ideas, to instruct the rest of the society to, to abandon them as well. In the spring of 1953, as I left our apartment house for the last of a series of law school exams, I met a young woman who I knew to be in the school of education. I sympathized with her about how hard she must be having to study. And she said, well, she had studied, but she had not really studied because there were no exams. He said, how can they grade then you, uh, then grade you? We're graded on class participation. That struck me as being preposterous. But the full dimensions of the calamity, such as uh, <clears throat> this idea, had not occurred to me yet. The problem was both with the budding teachers of the young avoiding the comp competition and the mastery of any subject matter with uh, educational fatness, grading adults on class participation, the endless pursuit of fads is a way of avoiding conventional methods and standards. A few years later, in a good private day school, my son was taught new math, which supposed he would learn the rationale behind the arithmetic rather than engage in such foolishness as the rope 
learning of multiplication tables. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the Japanese children were learning the multiplication tables by rote and ending, ending up far ahead of the American children, children in mathematics. I'm sure you teachers can attest to how things have changed. Education. James says if you want to be a teacher, that's a good thing, but, but, <laughs> what else do you say in verse one? <coughs> Somebody read it, verse one. What? Be judged more strictly. <coughs> We're responsible as teachers to speak the truth. What we say affects lives. And to live the truth is not just teaching. Art and I will never knowingly teach anything false. Never knowingly do it. We're staying with Scripture. Now we all come to a passage that says, I don't have a clue <laughs> what this means. We, we hardly ever have our own idea, but we glean this from somebody else that's written, got more PhDs behind their name than I do. And, and we've got a pastor that preaches the word. You can't get it. You can't get mad at Pastor Larry. You might get mad at what he says, but you need to check up because he's teaching what Scripture says. He's teaching what Scripture says. Does anybody remember what happened in 1978 in November? That's pretty, pretty strong. Anybody know? Is it, is it, is it Ray's birthday? Okay. Ray doesn't have this doesn't have anything to do with your birthday. When a teacher stumbles, they cause a crowd of people to stumble. In November 1978. 918 people. Say it. Who said it? Drank the Kool-Aid. And what do we say today? When somebody's drank the Kool-Aid, what have they done? When they've drank the Kool-Aid, they have taken it hook, line, and sinker of what somebody has said. 918 souls followed into Diana and drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. What people teach has consequence. Who you listen to has consequence. We, <laughs> I was asked one day how much time I talked, I studied to, to teach this lesson. And I said, more times than not, I start on Sunday afternoon, ready for next Sunday. <clears throat> And I study a little bit along, and then on Saturday I blitz. <laughs> but, but we want to bring you the truth. We want to bring you the truth, and we understand 
the high responsibility that we have as teachers. Our faith leads us to teach you correctly. And that's what James is saying. Everything we do from the rest of the chapter is pointing back to this. If you're God's child, act like it. If you're God's child, act like it. So we teach. And you folks that did it for a living, you taught. I've, Pat's not here this morning, but on more than one occasion I've heard <clears throat> these kids from Faith, Hope, Hope, and Victory who are not kids anymore come up to her and thank her for who she is and what she did to them. Okay. <clears throat> Education. Teaching. Verse 2. Verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Anybody that's a perfect man is able to bridle the whole body as well. I passed out some pages which is a copy out of Dr. Paul Brand's Forever Feast. Uh, Dr. Brand was a, a surgeon and he dealt with leprosy and he wrote fearfully and wonderfully made and we know our, our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. I've asked Art to read part of this for you this morning. You can follow with what you have there. Uh, uh, go ahead. Our amazing bodies, with their economy of function, often use a single organ for more than one task. The same nose which detects the fragrance of the orange blossom also takes in the very air we breathe. Ears that hear the sound of the nightingale also give us the gift of balance. The critically important mouth has many tasks as well. As adults, we generally talk and eat without conscious effort. This makes it easy for us to overlook one of the most important members of the body, the tongue. James has a chapter on the difficulty of taming the tongue, calling it an unruly evil. Such language seems a little harsh for an organ that obeys the brain so precisely. People often speak of wanting to bite their tongue when they've said something unkind. Yet, they would be better off praying for control of their thoughts so that their minds will instruct their tongues to speak kind words. When I want to speak, my conscious mind thinks of what I want to say and the nerves that control my tongue make it dance, dart, and twist as it gives shape to the sounds that come from my vocal cords. It turns them into vowels and consonants that make up the unique sound of my voice. Every person uses his tongue just a little differently manipulating the common sounds of his tongue with the music of his own distinctive vocal signature. And the next page. But our tongues do more than help us speak. When we eat our food, we don't think about what we're doing. Chewing requires no conscious thought about the tongue's whereabouts, except perhaps when the tongue needs to quickly get food out of the way so it can shift gears and switch to its other job, talking. Don't talk with your mouth full, Johnny. My teeth are hard and sharp, and they can cut and crush most of the things that enter my mouth. They can't feel the subtle differences between a piece of steak and my nerve-filled tongue. 
Like hammers and millstones, they come crashing closely together, cutting and grinding everything that comes between them. My tongue lives in much greater danger than would be permitted by any code of occupational safety, but I rarely give it a thought. In this deadly environment, the tongue scoops up unchewed food and pushes it between my teeth with no time to spare. My tongue has maybe a quarter of a second to find a glob of food and another eighth of a second to push it in between the teeth before they come crashing down. Then even more quickly, it has to get out of the way to safety. If in escaping the left-hand row of teeth, it panics and jumps to the right, it will get pulverized by the teeth in the right-hand row. The instant pain we feel when we bite our tongue keeps us from closing our jaws any further. Its warning may not be quick enough to prevent the tongue from being hurt and bruised, but it's nearly always in time to stop it being mangled like a piece of chewed up food. Once we bite our tongue, eating slows down considerably and it even hurts to talk. The body, as if repentant for carelessly accepting the tongue's dangerous working conditions, now gives priority to protecting this wounded member until it is healed. Had you ever thought about the tongue getting out of the way of the teeth? <laughs> James chapter 3. Verse 3. And if we put bits in a horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. How many horsemen we got in here? Um, you have to be a real good horseman to uh, ride a horse without a bridle. People do it. But normally they put a bridle and bits in their mouth and, and they They direct where the horse wants to go. Thousand pound, two thousand pound animal. Directed by a bit in their mouth. Verse four. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Just a John boat with a paddle at the back and direct that John boat where you want to go. Just an easy little move to slip around this tree so you can get a better shot at that bunch of bushes, huh? So, a big boat Small, small rudder. This uh, cruise ship in Italy that laid down on its side, I was interested in watching them erect it. And <clears throat> so, so much to the, I saved that sight. And when they did turn it up where you could see the side of it, the rudder was a little bitty thing in relation to the rest of the, of the ship. It's a little thing. Look what he says in verse 5. Also the tongue is a small part of the body, 
and yet it boasts of great things. <laughs> Until we get into the way of our teeth, we don't give it a second thought of what our tongue does. Not a second thought do we give it. Matthew chapter 15. <coughs> We've read this scripture before. But we're going to bring it back up again. Chapter 15, verse 15. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes in the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with one unwashed hands does not defile the man. Verse 18, again, proceed. But those things that proceed out of the mouth Come from the heart. Those things that proceed out of the mouth. Back to James, verse 5, he says, Also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. We used to say, this little saying. Sticks and stones may make break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie the devil's ever told. Something will happen sometimes at our house and I said, Belton, that was twenty years ago. She hadn't forgotten. <laughs> Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not, that's a lie. They're hard to heal. They're hard to heal. Look at the first verse or the next verse. Or the latter part of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. In verse 6, And the tongue is a, very, is a fire, the very word of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. 
and is set on fire by hell. By hell. <laughs> this is pick on belt today. <laughs> I'll leave for a meeting. And she will tell me, Bill, be sweet and be kind. Because <laughs> y'all have been in meetings with me when I haven't been sweet or kind. <laughs> sweet or kind. Years ago, there was a little boy that grew up. And he's a young man today, but he was one of our minister's music sons at home. And somebody had talked rough to me. And uh, his mother said, well, Brother Bill talks rough to you. He said, yeah, but Brother Bill loves me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The tongue sets on fire from hell itself. Okay. Your homework for this week is to guard your tongue. Because we're going to get more into it next week as we study the rest of the chapter when we talk about the tongue. This little member that darts and dashes in our mouth very important but what comes out is very important too and as he said in the first two verses he teaches people are listening you're all teachers you're all teachers you have a toddler come up to you sometime and say what you had said just a few minutes ago you're all listening James. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the beauty of going through Scripture. You know, we've got to take it like it. So we'll pick up here next week and we'll talk about it. Any, anything.